I want to begin my teaching this morning with a story I just made up. It's not in the Bible. It's not true. I just made it up. My wife says it's bad theology, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, Jesus dies on the cross. He's put into the tomb. He's resurrected. He's here for 40 days, and then he ascends to heaven, and Jesus is with his Father in heaven, and they're looking down at earth. And his Father says to him, Jesus, I see the guys that you recruited, the men and women that you recruited to help uh, build our kingdom there, to do our work there. I mean, there's Mary, and there's Priscilla, and there's Luke, and there's Peter, and there's John, and there's Bartholomew. Great people, but you're missing a personality type. Where's the driver? Where's the pusher? Where's the A-type personality that just, like, barges in everywhere? And Jesus said, oh, that's probably the bad theology. And he says, uh, do you have anyone in mind? And the father says to him, yeah, he's on his way to Damascus right now. Why don't you um, go get his attention, knock him to the earth, and call him to be one of yours? I think, I think he could uh, take a couple missionary journeys, and I think he could write a bunch of the Bible. That's all made up. Now, this is the part that is not made up, though. Let me read to you from the book of Acts where uh, the, the apostle Paul writes about what happened on the way to Damascus. So we have slides on this. After receiving the commander's permission, he's in front of a crowd with the commander. Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd, and when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became quite quiet. Then Paul said, now here's his story. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, the way of Jesus, to their death, arresting men and women and throwing them into prison. As the high priests and all the council can themselves testify to you. I even obtained letters uh, from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? He asked, Lord is like, sir, who are you, sir? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you've been persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, said the Lord. Go into Damascus. There you'll be told what you have been assigned to do. And my companions led me by hand into Damascus. Now, when Paul was called on the road to Damascus, there's one way, there's one similarity that uh, is the same as when you were called to follow Jesus. And this is it. When Paul was called to follow Jesus, God got all of who he was. He got his drivenness. He got his uh, cockiness. He got um, his passions. He got it all. And when Jesus called you, tapped you on the shoulder, he got all of who you are. And then he needs to begin the process of rewriting your story. Because some of what he got isn't very helpful, Right? Some of what he got from Paul was not very helpful. So Paul goes on to explain this in the book of Philippians. Now, listen to this, because these few verses actually declare what I'm teaching this morning. Philippians 3. 
If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh in their story, says Paul, in their narrative, then here's Paul, cocky, I have more. It doesn't matter how good you think you are, Paul's saying, I'm better. Whatever your story, I got a better story. This is who he was. And then he goes on to explain it. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law. And then here it is. Faultless. You know the other word for that? Perfect. I'm perfect, says Paul. I don't care how good you are, I'm better. I don't care how good you are, I'm perfect. Faultless. Does this sound like a type A personality? Kind of a leader, a doer, a take-the-mountain person? Yep. But whatever were gains to me, Paul says, I now consider them loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. What he once thought were strengths, in Christ now, he says, whoa, I was wrong. That's garbage. You and I, we all have garbage in our past, things that get in the way as we try to follow Jesus. And then, this is perfect for January of 2020, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. I'm going to put my eyes forward and keep going. All of us then, who are mature or maturing, should take such a view of things. So what's the view we should take? We're just like the Apostle Paul. When God called us, we have strengths and weaknesses. And we need to look back and we need to sometimes, in his power, rewrite our story and say, I can't be like that anymore. If I'm going to play well with others, I need to be different. And this is what happened to Paul as he continued to follow Jesus. In fact, there's a biblical, like theological word for this. It's called progressive sanctification. And it's a simple word. All it means is I'm getting more and more like Jesus. Over time, I'm progressively, step by step, becoming more sanctified, more right, more. So the, edge, the rough edges are being knocked off. And um, what's important is another verse from the book of Acts. I want to read this, Acts 13, 36. Now, when David, this is King David, had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried and his, with his ancestors, and his body decayed. The part I love about that, one of my favorite verses, when King David served God's purpose in his own generation, his day. King David had his day to get the rough edges grind it off, and follow Jesus. Paul had his day, and you and I have our day. Today's our day. This is our generation. We, can't, we need to learn to have God rewrite our story today, because this is the only day we have. And it actually doesn't matter whether you're 94 years old or whether you're in middle school. It doesn't matter whether you're a mother or a grandmother or a great-grandmother or someday hoping to be. It doesn't matter. We have today, and we need to be um, letting him rewrite our story. Do you ever notice when someone, there are people in life who push your buttons, right? You with me? Yeah, you don't need to elbow that person. Um, people push your buttons, 
And um, you respond the same way. And that's a part of your story. In fact, maybe your grandpa responded that way and your dad responded that way and you respond that way. And you think in your head there's this thing, well, I have to respond. If they do this, I have to do this. No, bonk, thanks for playing. That's not right. Jesus actually can rewrite your story so when people press your button, you have a totally different response. That's your story. Now, a lot of you have all kinds of things in your story, and those things uh, make a huge difference as you're following, and eventually, if you don't allow God to rewrite that part of your story, you can't play well with others. And the Apostle Paul had several of these in the Bible, and I, I just want to remind you of one from Acts 15. Got the slide. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns. He had been on a missionary journey. Now he's going to go back and revisit those towns where he'd preached the word. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, John Mark. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. And Barnabas and Paul had such a sharp disagreement. These are men trying to do God's work. And they had such a sharp disagreement, they split ways. And one took John Mark, and Paul found someone else to take. That's a part of that rough edge that wasn't rubbed off yet. He failed us once, I'm not going to give him another chance to fail us. Is that part of your rough edge? Once somebody fails you, it's interesting to me what Hope said. I didn't know what her answer would be. I'm having trouble forgiving people. Rough edge. Hard to play well with others when you're going to hold a grudge uh, continually that happened like three years ago. Hard to play well with others. So what are your issues about uh, playing well with others? Progressive sanctification. We need to know each other. Um, in fact, let me bring a business concept to the table here, I think. Uh, there's a book called uh, Who's in Your Boardroom? And for our purposes, I want you to say that you have a boardroom uh, that runs your mind and your heart and your soul. And I want you to ask for a minute, what are the voices? Who are the voices in your boardroom? Because as a follower of Jesus, there should be one loudest voice in the boardroom. Jesus. But you and I, we have lots of voices in our boardroom. My mom's been dead for two and a half years. She's still a voice in my boardroom. You ever notice that? People speak to you from the grave. Like some of you still remember some of the things your grandpa said. And they, my grandpa's been gone 25 years. There are voices in our boardroom, and we need to keep... Uh, Progressive sanctification. Keep helping Jesus become one of the louder voices. And that's what Hope was talking about in her interview. She was saying, I know what Jesus wants me to do. Right? Forgive people. But there are other voices in there. So who are the voices in your boardroom as you learn to play with others? Lately, my wife has been calling me Harold. That is not my name. She goes to the refrigerator, and she's cleaning it out, and she's saying, Dave, I'm going to throw away these old baked beans that are green, and they've been in here for two weeks. And I'll go, no, you can't do that. She'll say, yes, Harold. Harold was my dad's dad, my grandpa. He went through the Depression, 
Every time we would be eating our plates, he would say, finish your food. You do not throw food away. He um, stood in line. He lived in Waterloo. He stood in line at a place called Manpower, where a lot of people during the Depression, men and women, would come and stand, hoping to be hired for one day. One day. They didn't get hired for a week or a month or a year or forever. They got hired for one day. And when he was lucky enough to stand in line for a couple hours and be hired for one day, at the end of the day, he would get pennies per hour and he would buy food on the way home. That marked him. That was a voice in his boardroom. And somehow, he put that voice from his boardroom in my boardroom. Somehow. Never trusted banks. Again, when he died, we had to like go through the insulation of his attic to find his money. It was stuffed in suit coats and under drawers. Never trusted banks. Uh, when he got some resources, you know what he did? Because they were so hungry during the Depression, he built a full second kitchen in his basement with lots of cupboards and a storage closet. So now he's got an upstairs kitchen full of food. He's got a downstairs kitchen full of food, and he's got a cupboard. You know why? I'm not going to be hungry again. Right? He had voices in his boardroom from his story that impacted him all the way. And what's crazy is there's a part of that that's really served us and our family really well. We are quite a frugal family. I think it goes back to Harold. We're careful. We understand the value of a dollar. I think it goes back to Harold. But there are other things like throwing away green baked beans that don't work so well. And that's the way our stories are, right? Some of you have had incredible, tough narratives. You've been abused. You've uh, only received conditional love. You've been uh, pushed for performance. And um, some of you, those are things that are other than the voice of Jesus. And we need to break that. And especially during our child-rearing and grandchild-rearing times, we need to break those voices so that we don't pass them on. So, several things about rewriting your story. Um, uh, let me just uh, hit on a couple. Number one, uh, when you're going to rewrite your story, you need to observe yourselves, ourselves, and understand why we do what we do. Who are those voices? Where did that come from? What needs to be eliminated or adjusted or enhanced? Because as a follower of Jesus, I need to be more like this, Right? So it begins with some maturity. My, one of my definitions simply is maturity is like knowing yourself. And so often I'm finding myself doing things for a reason other than I believe, but it's because I don't know myself. And so uh, knowing yourself, observing ourselves. Number two, inviting others to tell us the truth and encourage us. Uh, Brooke was talking about life groups. For, she just mentioned it, the new members is in the form of kind of life groups a little bit. Uh, Life groups, you need to be with other people who can help you. Actually, when my wife calls me Harold, it's helpful. Not always at the moment, it's kind of a pushing of buttons. But when I stand back and think about it, she's saying, Dave, some of this came, you've got another voice in your mind. Inviting others to tell us the truth and encourage us. And I need more of that and you need that. And you need to be open to it. And you need to even invite it. And sometimes it's from your grandkids. Uh, my grandkids are in middle school these days, uh, quite a few of them. And um, so that's a unique era. 
and they see things in their grandpa, and they like name it. And I need to not just be uh, frustrated by it, but I need to, when it's true, receive it and learn from it. It's really important. Number three, and this is the most important, we need to ask for God's power and help to change. Because on your own, you won't be changing. On your own, you won't change these voices in your boardroom. You can't do it. I remember when I used to do a lot of marriage counseling in the church, and there was so much pain in the room. I mean, pain, just pain. And after the time was over and we'd pray and they would leave, I would just think, without the power of God, I don't even want to do this. Because you can't overcome the pain of a struggling marriage or raising a kid or whatever unforgiveness voices you have. You can't overcome that without the power of God. And we simply have to like surrender and say, God, give me the power to do this. Whatever it is he's calling us to do, whatever rough edges he's trying to wipe off, whatever way he's trying to rewrite our story, we need to be. Number four, give ourselves and others lots of time and grace to change. Real life change is built in the power of God and, and some of you know this really well, and you don't, it's built on a foundation of affirmation and encouragement, not on a foundation of beating yourself up or your children up emotionally. Or it's not on a foundation of criticism. It's on a foundation. Change actually happens on a foundation of affirmation and encouragement. Let me give you an example just from your own life. Have you ever tried to diet? Some of you have for sure. How did beating yourself up work? I mean, there's two ways to go at a diet, right? You can, at the end of one week, when you did a good job on one day out of seven, you either can beat yourself up for six days, or you can celebrate you did really well on one day. Which creates more change? Celebrating you did really well on one day, and maybe next week you could do a day and a half. This is true with our children, too. This is true with our teenagers. This is true. You encourage and affirm them. That gives them, ah, you, yeah, there's discipline, but you encourage and affirm them, and that gives them a base upon which to make the changes that they already know they want to make. It's huge. So we, we can't be people who beat, beat ourselves up when, when we've got the rough edges. Paul couldn't beat him up. Paul did a little of this in the Bible. He said, you know, everything I want to do, I never do. And what I definitely don't want to do, I'm always finding myself doing. But then he leaned into the grace of God. I'm glad God still loves me, even on my worst day. Affirmation. Okay. Uh, let me, uh, let me uh, ask you a question. Give a little example here. Um, I think Jesus wants us to trust people. There's, there's two kinds of people in the world, right? There's those who trust first. And they're just going to be trusting until somebody proves they're untrustworthy. And then there are people who go, I'm not going to trust anybody until like they walk with me for like 10 years and, and get over every hurdle I have. And then maybe I'll trust a little. Are you quite trusting or are you not trusting? And I've got a question to help you sort this out. Let's pretend for a minute that you lose your billfold. And there's $150 cash and it's found by a stranger. What percentage of the time do you believe you're going to get your billfold back with $150 cash? What percentage? Now, I did this at our kitchen table one time. 
in, uh, in our deal. And my kids wouldn't let me just get away with that question. They said, well, wait, wait. Where did you lose it? The high V. Parking lot. What high V? I guess it matters what high V. What time of day was it, Dad? I guess people are more trustworthy in the morning. So I said, noon at the Cedar Falls High V in the parking lot. You know where our answers came? From 20% of the time, you'll get it back, to 90% of the time, you'll get it back. Now, we only had eight around the table. Just think what the variation is in this room. And here's what I've discovered as I've been talking about this this week and the past week. We all have stories that support our percentage. So if you're a 20 percenter, you have a whole bunch of stories that support that. When I'm, I'm one of the 90 percenters, and you know what my kids say to me? Dad, you never have lived in the real world. <laughs> and you know what story I have? I did, in fact, lose a billfold full of cash on the beach at Ogle Island, Nebraska, outside of an outhouse. You didn't need to know that. <laughs> on a caravan trip. Six days later, it comes to me in the mail full of cash, my billfold. I've only lost my billfold once, and 100% of the time, I've got it back. So actually, 90, <laughs> I've scaled back. I do live in the real world. <laughs> you remember when bank cards, bank machines, cash machines, used to, like, eat our cards? You know, if you left your card in and drove away, which you used to be able, you can't, they've reprogrammed. This doesn't happen anymore. You can't get your cash until you pull the card out now. But in the old days, when they first came out, you could leave your card, take your cash, and drive away. I did it many, many times. <laughs> then the bank called you on Monday morning. I mean, I knew the bankers really well. It's like every Monday morning, I had to go pick up my card. Sometimes. I'm getting to the story. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, uh, someone would drive up behind me and it hadn't eaten the card yet and they'd pull it out. It was still active. One time, a guy from Toad's Bar, I never, never knew him before. He called me on the phone on a Saturday around noon. He goes, hey, are you the Dave Bartlett that just left your card in the machine? I've got it here at the bar. I said, yes, I think I am. <laughs> and I went and got it. You know, and I bought him a drink, you know. Thank you. One time. See, these are the stories that are behind my positivity of trusting strangers. One time, I did the same thing. I left the card. Somebody I didn't know pulled it out and said, Dave Parler, I know that guy. He's a pastor. I heard him once. He eats breakfast at Village Inn. This is an absolutely true story. <laughs> he drives to the Village Inn. He finds me in a booth, and he goes, we've never met, but here's your bank card. <laughs> If you're a 20 percenter, you have a different set of stories. My son and I got out of a cab in New York City. I hear it's the most unfriendly town in the nation sometimes by some ratings. We get out, someone walks over and says, you two look like you're confused and lost. Could I help you? And somebody says, well, that was another visitor. No, it was not. It was somebody who lived there. So our stories enhance. Let, let me do one more uh, quick story. At the end of the year, our church uh, puts out a letter asking every family in the church to give a special gift 
to support the ministry of our church beyond their regular giving. Did you get that letter? When you opened it and saw what it was, what were the voices? Because your boardroom has voices. Did any of you hear the voice? The church is always after my money. Yeah, you heard that one. <laughs> Did any of you hear the voice that like, uh, they sure have a lot of money anyway. They have more money than I do. Did you hear that voice? Now, the voice I told my family, I heard was, <laughs> again, I know I'm weird. Man, what a privilege to have my church ask me for a gift. And I can be a part of that mission. My family said, Dad, you're like 1%. There's nobody else hears those voices. What are the voices you hear? See, this is real life stuff. This is not like let's come to church and then go home and forget about it. This is actually real life stuff. What are the voices you hear? When your kid says something to you, middle, middle, middle schoolers are always like trying out ideas. And when they come home and at supper, they're trying out an idea. What voice do you hear? I need to be deathly afraid. I need to give my sermon again. I need to, what is it? So anyway, um, these voices in the boardroom. So you can rewrite your story. You can get off the rough edges, but only in the power of God. So ask him to uh, help you with these four steps. And um, let me pray. Dear God in heaven, it's true when you called us to follow you, you got the good and the bad and the ugly and the beautiful, you got it all. And then over time, you want to help us become more like Jesus. You want to help us follow you better. You want to help us play well with others. And Father, it's so true that we need your help for that. Help us. Help us have the power and the courage and the strength and the humility to make some changes in your power. Help the rough edges get smoothed off. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.